Section 23 of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Bernadetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley. Historical Summary, Part 5 this result of thought was a strange and a sad thing for one who loved art so fervently as hegel our memories conjure up plato who also loved art well and yet found himself logically obliged to banish the poet from his ideal republic after crowning him with roses but the german philosopher was as staunch to the supposed command of reason as the greek and felt himself obliged to announce the death of art art he says occupies a lofty place in the human spirit but not the most lofty for it is limited to a restricted content and only a certain grade of truth can be expressed in art such are the hellenic gods who can be transfused in the sensible and appear in it adequately the christian conception of truth is among those which cannot be so expressed the spirit of the modern world and more precisely the spirit of our religion and rational development seem to have gone beyond the point at which art is the chief way of apprehending the absolute the peculiarity of artistic production no longer satisfies our highest needs thought and reflection have surpassed art the beautiful he goes on to say that the reason generally given for this is the prevalence of material and political interests but the true reason is the inferiority in degree of art as compared with pure thought art is dead and philosophy can therefore supply its complete biography hegel's vorlesungen über aesthetik amounts therefore to a funeral oration upon art romanticism and metaphysical idealism had placed art sometimes above the clouds sometimes within them and believing that it was no good there to anyone hegel provided a decent burial nothing perhaps better shows how well this fantastic conception of art suited the spirit of the time than the fact that even the adversaries of schelling solger and hegel either admit agreement with that conception or find themselves involuntarily in agreement with it while believing themselves to be very remote they too are mystical aestheticians we all know with what virulence arthur schopenhauer attacked and combated schelling hegel and the charlatans and professors who had divided among them the inheritance of kant well schopenhauer's theory of art starts just like hegel's from the difference between the abstract and the concrete concept which is the idea schopenhauer's ideas are the platonic ideas although in the form which he gives them they have a nearer resemblance to the ideas of schelling than to the idea of hegel schopenhauer takes much trouble to differentiate his ideas from intellectual concepts he calls the idea unity which has become plurality by means of space and time it is the form of our intuitive apperception the concept is on the contrary unity extracted from plurality by means of abstraction which is an act of our intellect the concept may be called unitas post rem the idea unitas ante rem the origin of this physiological illusion of the ideas or types of things is always to be found in the changing of the imperial classifications created for their own purposes by the natural sciences into living realities thus each art has for its sphere a specific category of ideas 
architecture and its derivatives gardening and strange to say landscape painting is included with it sculpture and animal painting historical painting and the higher forms of sculpture etc all possess their special ideas poetry's chief object is man as idea music on the contrary does not belong to the hierarchy of the other arts schelling has looked upon music as expressing the rhythm of the universe itself for schopenhauer music does not express ideas but the will itself the analogies between music and the world between fundamental notes and crude matter between the scale and the scale of species between melody and conscience will lead schopenhauer to the conclusion that music is not only an arithmetic as it appears to leibniz but indeed a metaphysic the occult metaphysical exercise of a soul not knowing that it philosophizes for schopenhauer as for his idealist predecessors art is beatific it is the flower of life he who is plunged in artistic contemplation ceases to be an individual he is the conscious subject pure freed from will from pain and from time yet in schopenhauer's system exist elements for a better and more profound treatment of the problem of art he could sometimes show himself to be a lucid and acute analyst for instance he continually remarks that the categories of space and time are not applicable to art but only the general form of representation he might have deduced from this that art is the most immediate not the most lofty grade of consciousness since it precedes even the ordinary perceptions of space and time vico had already observed that this freeing oneself from ordinary perception this dwelling in imagination does not really mean an ascent to the level of the platonic ideas but on the contrary a redescending to the sphere of immediate intuition a return to childhood on the other hand schopenhauer had begun to submit the kantian categories to impartial criticism and finding the two forms of intuition insufficient added a third causality he also drew comparisons between art and history and was more successful here than the idealist excogitators of a philosophy of history schopenhauer rightly saw that history was irreducible to concepts that it is the contemplation of the individual and therefore not a science having proceeded thus far he might have gone farther and realized that the material of history is always the particular in its particularity that of art what is and always is identical but he preferred to execute a variation on the general motive that was in fashion at this time the fashion of the day it rules in philosophy as elsewhere and we are now able to see the most rigid and arid of analysts the leader of the so-called realist school or school of exact science in germany in the nineteenth century plunge headlong into aesthetic mysticism g f herbart eighteen thirteen begins his aesthetic by freeing it from the discredit attaching to metaphysic and to psychology he declares that the only true way of understanding art is to study particular examples of the beautiful and to note what they reveal as to its essence we shall now see what came of herbart's analysis of these examples of beauty and how far he succeeded in remaining free of metaphysic for herbart beauty consists of relations the science of aesthetic consists of an enumeration of all the fundamental relations between colors lines tones thoughts and will but for him these relations are not empirical or physiological they cannot therefore be studied in a laboratory because thought and the will form a part of them 
and these belong as much to ethics as to the external world but herbart explicitly states that no true beauty is sensible although sensation may and does often precede and follow the intuition of beauty there is a profound distinction between the beautiful and the agreeable or pleasant the latter does not require a representation while the former consists in representations of relations which are immediately followed by a judgment expressing unconditional approval thus the merely pleasurable becomes more and more indifferent but the beautiful appears always as of more and more permanent value the judgment of taste is universal eternal immutable the complete representation of the same relations always carries with it the same judgment for herbart aesthetic judgments are the general class containing the subclass of ethical judgments the five ethical ideas of internal liberty of perfection of benevolence of equity and of justice are five aesthetic ideas or better they are aesthetic concepts applied to the will in its relations herbart looked upon art as a complex fact composed of an external element possessing logical or psychological value the content and of a true aesthetic element which is the form entertainment instruction and pleasure of all sorts are mingled with the beautiful in order to obtain favor for the work in question the aesthetic judgment calm and serene in itself may be accompanied by all sorts of physic emotions foreign to it but the content is always transitory relative subject to moral laws and judged by them the form alone is perennial absolute and free the true catharsis can only be effected by separating the form from the content concrete art may be the sum of two values but the aesthetic fact is form alone for those capable of penetrating beneath appearances the aesthetic doctrines of herbart and kant will appear very similar herbart is notable as insisting in the manner of kant on the distinction between free and adherent beauty or adornment as sensuous stimulant on the existence of pure beauty object of necessary and universal judgments and on a certain mingling of ethic with his aesthetic theory herbart indeed called himself a kantian but of the year eighteen twenty eight kant's aesthetic theory though it be full of errors yet is rich in fruitful suggestions kant belongs to a period when philosophy is still young and pliant herbart came later and is dry and one-sided the romantics and the metaphysical idealists had unified the theory of the beautiful and of art herbart restored the old duality and mechanism and gave us an absurd unfruitful form of mysticism void of all artistic inspiration herbart may be said to have taken all there was of false in the thought of kant and to have made it into a system the beginning of the nineteenth century in germany is notable for the great number of philosophical theories and of counter-theories broached and rapidly discussed before being discarded none of the most prominent names in the period belonged to philosophers of first-rate importance though they made so much stir in their day the thought of friedrich schleiermacher was obscured and misunderstood amid those crowding mediocrities yet it is perhaps the most interesting and the most noteworthy of the period schleiermacher looked upon aesthetic as an altogether modern form of thought he perceived a profound difference between the poetics of aristotle not yet freed from empirical precepts and the tentative of baumgarten in the eighteenth century he praised kant as having been the first to include aesthetic among the philosophical disciplines he admitted that with hegel it had attained to the highest pinnacle being connected with religion and with philosophy 
and almost placed upon their level but he was dissatisfied with the absurdity of the attempt made by followers of baumgarten to construct a science or theory of sensuous pleasure he disapproved of kant's view of taste as being the principle of aesthetic of fitch's art as moral teaching and of the vague conception of the beautiful as the centre of aesthetic he approved of schiller's marking of the moment of spontaneity in productive art and he praised schelling for having drawn attention to the figurative arts as being less liable than poetry to be diverted to false and illusory moralistic ends before he begins the study of the place due to the artistic activity in ethic he carefully excludes from the study of aesthetic all practical rules which being empirical are incapable of scientific demonstration for schleiermacher the sphere of ethic included the whole philosophy of the spirit in addition to morality these are the two forms of human activity that which like logic is the same in all men and is called activity of identity and the activity of difference or individuality there are activities which like art are internal or immanent and individual and others which are external or practical the true work of art is the internal picture measure is what differentiates the artist's portrayal of anger on the stage and the anger of a really angry man truth is not sought in poetry or if it be sought there it is truth of an altogether different kind the truth of poetry lies in coherent presentation likeness to a model does not compose the merit of the picture not the smallest amount of knowledge comes from art which expresses only the truth of a particular consciousness art has for its field the immediate consciousness of self which must be carefully distinguished from the thought of the ego this last is the consciousness of identity in the diversity of moments as they pass the immediate consciousness of self is the diversity itself of the moments of which we should be aware for life is nothing but the development of consciousness in this field art has sometimes been confused with two facts which accompany it there these are sentient consciousness that is the feelings of pleasure and of pain and religion schleiermacher here alludes to the sensualistic aestheticians of the eighteenth century and to hegel who had almost identified art and religion he refutes both points of view by pointing out that sentient pleasure and religious sentiment however different they may be from other points of view are yet both determined by an objective fact while art on the contrary is free productivity dream is the best parallel and proof of this free productivity all the essential elements of art are found in dream which is the result of free thoughts and of sensible intuitions consisting simply of images but dream as compared with art is chaotic when measure and order is established in dream it becomes art thoughts and images are alike essential to art and to both is necessary ponderation reflection measure and unity because otherwise every image would be confused with every other image thus the moments of inspiration and of ponderation are both necessary to art schleiermacher's thought so firm and lucid up to this point begins to become less secure with the discussion of typicity and the extent to which the artist should follow nature he says that ideal figures which nature would give were she not impeded by external obstacles are the products of art he notes that when the artist represents something really given such as a portrait or a landscape 
he renounces freedom of production and adheres to the real in the artist is a double tendency toward the perfection of the type and toward the representation of natural reality he should not fall into the abstraction of the type nor into insignificance of empirical reality schleiermacher feels all the difficulty of such a problem as whether there be one or several ideals of the human figure this problem may be transferred to the sphere of art and we may ask whether the poet is to represent only the ideal or whether he should also deal with those obstacles to it that impede nature in her efforts to attain both views contain half the truth to art belongs the representation of the ideal as of the real of the subjective and the objective alike the representation of the comic that is of the anti-ideal and the imperfect ideal belongs to the domain of art for the human form both morally and physically oscillates between the ideal and caricature he arrives at a most important definition as to the independence of art in respect to morality the nature of art as of philosophic speculation excludes moral and practical effects therefore there is no other difference between works of art than their respective artistic perfection vollkommenheit in der kunst if we could correctly predict volitional aspects in respect of works of art then we should find ourselves admiring only those works which stimulated the will and there would thus be established a difference of valuation independent of artistic perfection the true work of art depends upon the degree of perfection with which the external in it agrees with the internal schleiermacher rightly combats schiller's view that art is in any sense a game that he says is the view held by mere men of business to whom business alone is serious but artistic activity is universal and a man completely deprived of it unthinkable although the difference here between man and man is gigantic ranging from the simple desire to taste of art to the effective tasting of it and from this by infinite gradations to productive genius the regrettable fact that schleiermacher's thought has reached us only in an imperfect form may account for certain of its defects such as his failure to eliminate aesthetic classes and types his retention of a certain residue of abstract formalism his definition of art as the activity of difference had he better defined the moment of artistic reproduction realized the possibility of tasting the art of various times and of other nations and examined the true relation of art to science he would have seen that this difference is merely empirical and to be surmounted he failed also to recognize the identity of the aesthetic activity with language as the base of all other theoretic activity but schleiermacher's merits far outweigh these defects he removed from aesthetic its imperativistic character he distinguished a form of thought different from logical thought he attributed to our science a non-metaphysical anthropological character he denied the concept of the beautiful substituting for it artistic perfection and maintaining the aesthetic equality of a small with a great work of art he looked upon the aesthetic fact as an exclusively human productivity thus schleiermacher the theologian in this period of metaphysical orgy of rapidly constructed and as rapidly destroyed systems perceived with the greatest philosophical acumen what is really characteristic of art and distinguished its properties and relations 
even where he fails to see clearly his way he never abandons analysis for mere guesswork schleiermacher thus exploring the obscure religion of the immediate consciousness or of the aesthetic fact can almost be heard crying out to his strained contemporaries hic rhodus he salta speculation upon the origin and nature of language was rife at this time in germany many theories were put forward among the most curious being that of stelling who held language and mythology to be the product of a pre-human consciousness allegorically expressed as the diabolic suggestions which had precipitated the ego from the infinite to the finite even wilhelm von humboldt was unable to free himself altogether from the intellectualistic prejudice of the substantial identity and the merely historical and accidental diversity of logical thought and language he speaks of a perfect language broken up and diminished with the lesser capacities of lesser peoples he believed that language is sometimes standing outside the individual independent of him and capable of being revived by use but there were two men in humboldt an old man and a young one the latter was always suggesting that language should be looked upon as a living not as a dead thing as an activity not as a word this duality of thought sometimes makes his writing difficult and obscure although he speaks of an internal form of speech he fails to identify this with art as expression the reason is that he looks upon the word in too unilateral a manner as a means of developing logical thought and his ideas of aesthetic are too vague and too inexact to enable him to discover their identity despite his perception of the profound truth that poetry precedes prose humboldt gives grounds for doubt as to whether he had clearly recognized and firmly grasped the fact that language is always poetry and that prose science is a distinction not of aesthetic form but of content that is of logical form steinthal the greatest follower of humboldt solved his master's contradictions and in eighteen fifty five sustained successfully against the hegelian becker the thesis that words are necessary for thought he pointed to the deaf mute with his signs to the mathematician with his formulae to the chinese language where the figurative portion is an essential of speech and declared that becker was wrong in believing that the sanskrit language was derived from twelve cardinal concepts he showed effectively that the concept and the word the logical judgment and the proposition are not comparable the proposition is not a judgment but the representation of a judgment and all propositions do not represent logical judgments several judgments can be expressed with one proposition the logical divisions of judgments the relations of concepts have no correspondence in the grammatical divisions of propositions if we speak of a logical form of the proposition we fall into a contradiction in terms no less complete than his who should speak of the angle of a circle or the periphery of a triangle he who speaks in so far as he speaks has not thoughts but language when steinthal had several times solemnly proclaimed the independence of language as regards logic and that it produces its forms in complete autonomy he proceeded to seek the origin of language recognizing with humboldt that the question of its origin is the same as that of its nature language he said belongs to the great class of reflex movements but this only shows one side of it not its true nature animals like men have reflex actions and sensations though nature enters the animal by force takes it by assault conquers and enslaves it 
with man is born language because he is resistance to nature governance of his own body and liberty language is liberation even today we feel that our soul becomes lighter and frees itself from a weight when we speak man before he attains to speech must be conceived of as accompanying all his sensations with bodily movements mimetic attitudes gestures and particularly with articulate sounds what is still lacking to him that he may attain speech the connection between reflex movements of the body and the state of the soul if his sentient consciousness be already consciousness then he lacks the consciousness of a consciousness if it be already intuition then he lacks the intuition of intuition in some he lacks the internal form of language with this comes speech which forms the connection man does not choose the sound of his speech this is given to him and he adopts it instinctively when we have accorded to steinthal the great merit of having rendered coherent the ideas of humboldt and of having clearly separated linguistic from logical thought we must note that he too failed to perceive the identity of the internal form of language or intuition of the intuition as he called it with the aesthetic imagination herbert's psychology to which steinthal adhered did not afford him any means for this identification herbart separated logic from psychology calling it a normative science he failed to discern the exact limits between feeling and spiritual formation psyche or soul and spirit and to see that one of these spiritual forms is logical thought or activity which is not a code of laws imposed from without for herbart aesthetic as we know was a code of beautiful formal relations thus steinthal following herbart in psychology was bound to look upon art as a beautifying of thought linguistic as the science of speech rhetoric and aesthetic as the science of beautiful speech steinthal never realized that to speak is to speak well or beautifully under penalty of not speaking and that the revolution which he and humboldt had effected in the conception of language must inevitably react upon and transform poetic rhetoric and aesthetic thus despite so many efforts of conscientious analysis on the part of humboldt and of steinthal the unity of language and of poetry and the identification of the science of language and the science of poetry still found its least imperfect expression in the prophetic aphorisms of vico the philosophical movement in germany from the last quarter of the eighteenth century to the first half of the nineteenth notwithstanding its many errors is yet so notable and so imposing with the philosophers already considered as to merit the first place in the european thought of that period this is even more the case as regards aesthetic than as regards philosophy in general End of section twenty three